This yes. is hell. All right, then. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. The police and policing are not broken. If they were broken, then that would imply they can be fixed. And the police and policing, as we know them today, as they exist right now, those processes cannot be fixed. The very premise of police, that they can reduce harm done to the population through their own application of violence and force, is at best flawed and at its very worst deadly, imposing an ominous menace that is constantly watching your every move with the assumption that you are engaged in some form of criminality, especially in marginalized communities of people of color, specifically black people. But if, as our guest today argues, if the police cannot be fixed, then what is to be done about those who would do harm to us? Can How can we be safe and secure without police? Well, the first thing you'd have to answer is, how safe are we with police? The institution doesn't really seem to have a very good track record when it comes to stopping or solving crimes. That seemingly shoddy record aside, without police, there's the assumption there would be chaos with 24-7 looting as there would be a sudden vacuum when it comes to serving and protecting the public. The problem with that belief is cops spend most of their time doing non-cop things instead of stopping criminals and solving crimes. It's as if they're not needed as much as we or they think, and we certainly don't need the vast armies of police that currently operate. We'll discuss the future of police, which is hopefully the end of policing in a few when we have the return of organizer, educator, and curator, Mariam Kaba, author of We Do This Till We Free Us, Abolitionist Organizing, and Transforming Justice. Miriam was on This Is Hell back in 2017 to talk about her article, Free Us All Participatory Defense Campaigns as Abolitionist Organizing. And she also talked with us about another article she had written for the new inquiry, Hashtag Abolish. Miriam is active in movements for racial, gender, and transformative justice. She is the founder and director of Project NIA, a grassroots organization with a vision to end youth incarceration. You can find out more about the project at project-nia.org. Miriam is a researcher at Interrupting Criminalization Research and Action at the Barnard Center for Research on Women, a project she co-founded with another past guest here on This Is Hell, Andrea Ritchie, who was on our show back in 2018 to talk about her Truth Out article, Prostitution-Related Loitering Ordinance Promotes Racial Profiling in Chicago, which she wrote with Brett Schulte. Britt Schulte, sorry. Find out more about Miriam at her website, Miriam Kaba, that's K-A-B-A, dot com. Also on today's show, you sent us some very thoughtful emails and messages over this past weekend that we will be sharing. Producer Jess Lipka will have this week's Hangover Cure and Rotten History, as well as tell us what's happening on the show for the rest of the week. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. It's Tuesday, so today's producer is Jess Lipka. Jess, how are you? Look at this, two Tuesdays in a row. We're on a hot streak after missing four of five Tuesdays. How are you, sir? I'm good. Anything new about you? Um, not. I mean, not much, other than... My basement is flooding, which sucks. <laughs> is this a new place that you're living in, right? Uh, I, I mean, you know, three, four months. So, but this is the first time it's flooded. Yeah, 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 yeah. Did you lose any stuff? No, 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 no. I mean, it wasn't, I mean, 
it just the smell isn't great. <laughs> no, it never is. Hey, did you watch any of that uh, redigitized Ali Frazier one fight this weekend? No, no, I haven't. I've been seeing lots of headlines. Oh my god, there's got so much publicity, and I went to go turn it on, and just the lead up to the fight, I was so bored by the time it actually got to the fight, I couldn't take um. it anymore. <laughs> Uh, more importantly than any of that, Jess, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what's the name of that top secret government weed strain? <laughs> what's the name of that top secret government weed strain? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, from hell wins. Your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner, as we do every week following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. Jess will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question mail following Miriam Kaba, today's guest. Putting people before profit since 1996, which turns out to be a... a, a, a Really great theoretical model, but it's a horrible business model. This is hell, and if you want to contribute to our horrible business model, you can be, you can by becoming a subscriber on Patreon at Patreon.com/slash/ThisIsHell. And if you do, you will not, you will not only be supporting us in our massive rebuild of our 25 years of archives, which we hope to make accessible to everyone for free but you will also get exclusive access to our weekly patreon podcast which streams live every friday at 10 a.m chicago time and is podcast at patreon shortly after on this past friday's patreon podcast we played another of our several several interviews that we did with the late great historian howard zinn this one was from 2007 Howard was on back then to talk about, among other things, the problem with citizens getting elected and suddenly transforming into something called a politician. During each Patreon podcast, I deliver a monologue that, like the classic interview we share, is unavailable anywhere else online but on Patreon. On this past Friday's uh, podcast, we went back up north through the northern part of Michigan's Lower Peninsula, back to small-town America via the pages of a weekly community newspaper I received as a gift way back in 2019 the Houghton Lake Resorter. This is the first time we return to the pages of the Resorter since the January 6th U.S. Capitol siege and the local letter writers to the Your Opinion section of the editorial page are on fire. And they all seem to be fighting over what is an American and what is not. But you can only hear our 2007 interview with Howard Zinn and find out what's happening in small-town America in the wake of the Capitol siege by subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishell. And if you do, we'll send you some free This Is Hell subvertising stickers, and you will get a special discount on all of our merchandise at thisishell.com that you can see right now when you click on support. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, This Is Hell, and Jess has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is salty lemonade or fresh lime soda. According to an article at MissMalini.com headlined, 10 tried and tested hangover cures that actually work, electrolytes are the best way to cure your hangover. Hydrate yourself with salty and lemony drinks throughout the day. This will help to help do two things. It will make you pee a lot more, enabling your system to cleanse itself by flushing out the alcohol from it, and it will also hydrate you better. That makes this week's Hangover Cure 
salty lemonade or fresh lime soda. Doesn't salty lemonade sound like a racehorse? <laughs> like, like the horse you'd bet on at Arlington? I like salty lemonade to win in the sixth. You can email us your thoughts, criticism, and suggestions to chuck at thisishell.com. You can message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can DM them to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. And if you do, we will likely share your writing on air because we get the absolute best guest and topic ideas and emails also, the criticism of the show, constructive and destructive, is all so amazing. And thanks to everyone who sent their condolences on the passing of my biggest brother, Matt Mertz. Thanks for indulging me all last week with the three-part series we did on his life. It really helped me grieve and mourn, so it is much, much appreciated. Justin emailed, writing, Hey Chuck, first off, I'd like to offer my condolences for your loss. Thank you for sharing stories of your brother. I gotta say, I don't know you nor your brother personally, but those stories cheered me up and made me call my own younger brother. You mentioned a craving for corn dogs. I thought to share this goofy quarantine sculpture project my partner made for praise of her favorite food, corn dogs. Hope it lifts the spirits as you are down... <laughs> Sorry. Hopes it lifts the spirits as you down those spirits. Take care, Justin. Justin then included an image of a parody action figure, this toy package that has a plastic corn dog wearing sunglasses with one Chuck Taylor shoe at the end of the corn dog stick, and it's accompanied by a toy skateboard. He's called Corn Dog Guy, and according to the package, the appropriate ages are cool and up and you can actually see it right now alex shared it at our facebook page facebook.com slash this is hell radio so if you want to see justin's partner's corn dog guy you got to go check that out because it did lift my spirits thanks justin corn dog did cheer me up but not as much as you reacting to me telling stories about my brother by calling your brother. Now that really cheered me up, more than any corn dog guy could. Dan also sent his condolences, writing, Hi, Chuck, my condolences on the loss of your big brother. He sounds like he was a hell of a guy. I hope your back improves too. Thanks for all your amazing work, Dan. Thank you, Dan. And yes, my back spasms have subsided a little bit, at least for now, with the help of my new office chair that listener Rob had sent to my home. Thanks again, Rob. Much appreciated on the new office chair. And we got condolences from Tom in a really beautiful email. Tom writes, Hi, Chuck. Condolences on the loss of your dear brother, Matt. Matt. I recall meeting him, of course, on a couple of occasions, however briefly. He was quite a character, and it has been wonderful and poignant to hear more detailed stories about him and you growing up and figuring out how to navigate this cruel, crazy, beautiful world. While I'm glad to know you due to your output on your This Is Hell show, it has even more value to hear more about your life stories and your many influences, particularly that of your brother. I can only imagine how it feels to lose someone that close in your immediate family. I've lost a couple of cousins and my father, but I still have my two brothers, both older. While I hope to live a long, long time, I kind of hope that my brothers will eventually have to deal with my departure rather than me having to deal with either of theirs. Dang, what a weird and awkward thing to say. Have you ever noticed that when folks try to deal with death, they sometimes say weird and awkward things? Yeah, me too. 
I used to think it was a lame and trite thing to say that our loved ones will live on in our memories, but I'm starting to believe that it may be literally true. None of us can be defined apart from our environments, from our communities, from all that has influenced us, just as throwing a stone into a pond creates ripples that continue to move out and make waves potentially infinitely. So does the influence of each person who has lived continue on in the minds and hearts of their loved ones long after their departure. Anyhow, that's my current working theory. As vague and trite as it is, I'm sure there is a Hallmark card that says it better and more succinctly. Okay, take care, man. Looking forward to seeing you in the This Is Hell crew before too long. Peace and love and solidarity, Tom G. Tom, I am 100% certain Hallmark does not have a card that says it any better than the way that you have. A real quick addendum to one of those stories. The first I told about how my brother, despite being born physically disabled, as I am, both of us being legally blind, he was forced to go to schools for the developmentally and mentally disabled, prohibited from attending what you'd call regular public schools. So I said how the, I explained how the school district would not allow him to attend regular schooling unless he could, for one year, hold a B average in middle school for the entire year not just a passing grade not a c grade not to be an average student but a b grade as in better than average i recounted how he actually made the grade and was allowed to enter the same school all of the kids from the block were attending the school just a half a block away what i did not know until this weekend is the school district still did not allow my brother Matt into the regular school system after attaining a B average for an entire year in middle school. It wasn't until my mom went down to the school, met with the principal, and apparently convinced him that he was going to let Matt attend, or who the hell knows what she was going to do. That's how lousy it was and is for the disabled. Even when we are given a a challenge that we can actually overcome, It's still not enough to gain respect or give us any kind of reward. So I don't know what my mom said. I don't know what she did. I know my dad had some criminal tendencies, but who knows? My brother was able to go to school. Thanks to everyone who has sent their kind words due to my family's loss. They really helped me during this very, very, very difficult time. And I shared them with family members and they were also incredibly, incredibly happy as well you can send us your comments on the show guest or topic suggestions or anything you want to to chuck at this is hell.com and we'll likely share your thoughts on air live from the united states where the law is the crime this is hell the police are not broken because that implies they can be fixed jess will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell is which is, sorry, what's the name of that top secret weed strain? What's the name of that top secret government weed strain? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Again, leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. Email it to us. Direct message us it to us via Twitter. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. We're going to have more rotten. We're going to have rotten history, and we'll tell you what's happening on the show tomorrow and Thursday. Following our guest, another end of the world is possible. This is hell. 
Policing does not work. Getting people to reduce harm to each other by employing your own version of brutal violence is not a solution to society's problems. More than a solution to our problems, it's a process of actually denying the problems that do exist, that we all face every day. Returning to This Is Hell Today, we are very, very happy to have back on organizer, educator, and curator Miriam Kaba, author of the new book, We Do This Till We Free Us, Abolitionist Organizing and Transforming Justice. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Miriam. Hi. Thank you so much for having me, um, Chuck. And I would love to take this moment to also add my condolences um, for the loss of your older brother uh, to the condolences of other listeners and um, show supporters. Um, I'm just very sorry. And um, just loss is such a hard thing. And in a time when we can't get together to grieve, um, I think sometimes it makes it even more difficult. So sincere condolences and may his memory be a blessing. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. You know, and that actually <laughs> takes us to one of the, I have like 55 questions. I think this was probably my 54th question I was going to ask <laughs> you, but this is a really good time to bring it up. How does the pandemic affect the way in which we should be reacting to police? The, how does that affect the campaign to abolish policing? Is this a good time to be fighting for uh, the abolition of policing because uh, crisis creates vulnerability? Or is this a bad time because crisis creates vulnerability? Well, I think that um, we're in a current moment where um, I think if people think about it, it's been decades of um, not funding the systems that could keep us safe to the absolute detriment of all of our experiences. And I think maybe the pandemic has made it clearer for people in a way um, that that is a huge problem. So our, our years and years of defunding the public health system left us in such a vulnerable place. The fact that, um, you know, I, don't, I wasn't shocked, for example, when um, all that people could do initially when the pandemic hit was think of how to use the cops as social workers during this period. So we had people making um, kind of offers that what we should do is have police hand out uh, masks and fines and fees to people who were quote unquote breaking you know, um, various pandemic um, rules and pandemic um, statutes that people had, you know, put on mask mandates and things like that. We were, we're, I mean, I don't know how it's possible for people not to see just how depleted the commons are because of the fact that we've just disproportionately put so much resources into policing. And also now look at what's happening with the vaccine distribution the people who are being called on to get people vaccinated en masse are who? They're soldiers. We're, we've got a whole, we're bringing in the National Guard and the military to give people vaccinations at mass vaccine sites. Again, why? Because those institutions are the only ones that have been completely continued to be funded no matter what. 
And I, to me, that's something that we ought to really be thinking about and thinking about how unsafe that really has made all of us, ultimately. Um, it, it just, it, it, it's, it's really something. The fact that the government chose not to just pay people to stay home, but continues to choose to pay for violence workers constantly. I mean, why aren't people making those connections and seeing how much worse everything is as a result of that? What do you think keeps us from from making that kind of connection? Because a few weeks ago, I mentioned on this show how there was a new variant of COVID-19 mm-hmm. that had showed up in Colorado. It had showed up in a nursing home, in a convalescent home for the elderly. And the people who were infected by it were National Guard members because National Guard members had to be called in to work at that nursing home because yeah. the workers at the nursing home wouldn't go there. When I mentioned it on the show, somebody's emailed me and said, the exact same thing was happening in Canada back in March and April of last year. So what do you, what explains to you why we cannot make that connection, that instead of it being a valiant, patriotic soldier doing their duty, we should be seeing this as the uh, state unable to provide the services that it is supposed to provide? Exactly. Um, I think it's because we've all, you know, years ago... Um, a comrade, Paula Rojas, wrote a piece that I always encourage people to read, which is that the police are in our heads and hearts. And I really feel like that is the case on a regular basis. I think, and and this is not new, I'm not the only one to have said this, but I've experienced this. I think it's easier for people to imagine a world without prisons um, over a world without policing. And it's just so ingrained in us as human beings at this point in time, you know, Um, there are real reasons for that. It's because often we identify police as individuals, you know, Uncle John, uh, you know, Aunt Susie, who's a lovely person, you know, Um, and so you kind of make the person, you individualize the role as opposed to understanding the structural and systemic you know, the structural and systemic function of the role, you make it into a person and that makes it really hard for you to see that structural and systemic role as really horrifying and oppressive, which it is. Um, And so I think there's a lot to that. And I also think people just don't think about what we want the state to do right like on in a in like a major way I think people think yeah the state's responsible for quote unquote protection of its citizens and therefore we're just going to give over every one of our resources towards that goal and we're also not ever going to ask questions right I always find it so interesting you know Chuck as I'm always asked by people to prove that the thing that we want to do will work and I ask those very same people if they ask the prisons to prove that they work and if they ask the police to prove that they work or the military to quote, prove their effectiveness and whether they work. And people look at me as though I have come from a, like earth too, right? Like, because it's not even a consciousness in their mind to be like, well, you know, I, why would I do that? Right? Like, it's just an assumption that those institutions should get all the resources and not quote unquote, have to demonstrate any sort of quote, effectiveness 
they're not like, it's not even a question, but our little organization that gets $10,000 has to come up with a point A to point Z evaluation <laughs> of whether or not, quote unquote, it worked or was effective, right? We just, we just aren't able to kind of see the way that um, the violent state has taken over our imaginations and has made it almost impossible for us to see past it, right? Like it just, it, it makes itself so indispensable and so legitimized that we just can't like, and, and bringing that up brings up all these real visceral feelings of not just fear, which I understand, but also just indignation. How dare you? How dare you tell us there's a potential other way of being in the world? This just makes no sense, right? So we're always like, there's so much in this about our psychology. There's so much in this about what our political, our lack of political education. There's so much in this about just being a human being and needing to live your life and survive. And like, you just don't want to get into it too deeply, you know? Um, and also there's a lot of, this is as, how it's always been when it's not true that this is a, how it's always been, you know, it's everything, all these institutions have been so naturalized for us that I think it's really hard for people to see something different. And when people want to bring up something different, like you do, you somehow have to read into the future and tell people yeah. how the future is going to be <laughs> while, while, while at the same time, they don't have to discuss the past, something that is concrete that we actually know about. You mentioned individualizing the situation, and it made me think about uh, the idea of it's just a few rotten apples. Does policing create rotten apples? Mm. Well, isn't the rotten, isn't the bad apple thing, wasn't like, isn't the last part of that, like a bad apple ruins the bunch, right? <laughs> like, and what, so again, I, so the, the point being that this stuff doesn't stay where it is. It isn't an individualized thing. It actually spreads beyond and actually the root of the problem, you know, the tree, the root of the tree is bad. Um, and so that means bad apples are going to come out of that root. And again, this is why I don't like to talk with folks about like uncle Johnny, like this, this is not about your uncle Johnny who is probably a lovely human being. Right. Like, and I really don't care about Uncle Johnny being in your mind a good person. This isn't about good people. This is about the fact that look at the institution over time. Why is it that the same things keep happening over and over and over again? Like, what what is that a result of? Shouldn't that be like, why are police why are police consistently and with impunity? killing black and brown people and indigenous people in, in this disproportionate way for like, you know, decades and generations. Why is that happening? And, I, and I've always asked people like to answer that question and to stop every single time another person is killed. And I, and I, I do wanna say this too, Chuck, like I, I wanna stay away from just the harm that policing does that is the killing because that's like a tip of the spear, but there's so much routine harm that happens mundanely every single day. The harassment of particular populations that occurs within their own neighborhoods and communities, the people who are injured but not killed, 
the psycho the psychic and psychological violence that's being deployed against people you know i think about my loved ones you know young people in my lot in my life who are scared to death of the police like scared to death to the point where they plan their days around how to avoid contact with them now that means that your actual mobility and your ability to live in the world is curtailed by an institution that is set up supposedly to protect and serve you like isn't that that feels obscene to me and it feels deeply deeply wrong and if you're not a person who experiences that which some people clearly are not you ought to think about all the people who do experience that and for whom their life chances are actually really really impacted in a way that isn't going to allow them to be able to quote live free right and i just i think about that all the time because i'm surrounded by young people of color and black young people in particular who consistently think about these things all the time even if they don't talk about it with adults in their lives it's just a daily part of their existence how and I, I was sorry one thing else which is that i tell this story of how i became um kind of radicalized um against these um people used to always say oh you know one of the things we might do is create like restorative justice circles in communities between police and young people in the neighborhood and you know years ago I was actually like, okay, well, that makes, you know, maybe that's a good way to talk about um, quote unquote building relationships that might be more, more um, pro, you know, pro social and healthy. Um, and I remember a young person sitting me down literally and being like, Ms. Kaba, can I just talk to you for a minute? Like, the problem between me and the cops on the corner is not that we don't know each other. It's actually that we know each other way too well. And the problem at the source of our issue is that they have all the power and I don't. And I just, I mean, this kid was 16 years old, you know, when, when he brought this to my attention. And I remember just feeling so, I don't know what I felt. I mean, maybe it was ashamed or maybe it was disappointed in myself for not having made like having all this analysis but still being seduced into this potential way of an individual one-on-one -on -one relationship building between the cops and the kids kind of model still wanting that even when i knew like i knew all the stuff like what he said to me was not an analysis i didn't have i just like i don't know what i was thinking you know and that i would put those young people potentially in further danger by supporting that kind of a process and uh, that kind of a, uh, you know, a project, really, I still think about it in a way that makes me so sad, you know? This how, was several years ago, but yeah. How did you feel then about, uh, you know, there were all these images uh, being shared on social media in during the protests in the wake of the police killing of George Floyd, where you saw People who were marching in the street, people were protesting, people were clearly aware of racialized police violence, kneeling with police. How did you feel about those images where people were saying, you know, it seemed like a lot of liberals were coming out and saying, this is what we need. Yes. You know what I felt? I felt like I, I felt so much empathy. 
and I felt so much of like I felt so deeply that we desperately cling to symbolic things when we that we feel like we really need those things and I think in the way we do to fight against fear and despair like I think that sometimes it's difficult to see yourself out of the situation you're currently in and you grasp at anything that feels quote unquote positive that feels like there's a way forward and I think those images because I, I want to have a lot of generosity for people because I because I the story I just told I, I, I hope people have generosity for me for being so ridiculous in my thinking at the time even having had so much information right like I still was I still was like well maybe at least it'll make it better for these young people in this particular community if these if we do these circles you know maybe that will make the difference for these particular young like and not under not like making the connection that no it's not these individuals it's actually a system that these individuals are part of and that that system demands people to act certain kinds of ways to do certain kinds of work to be certain way with community and um that without addressing that we're just still going to be putting our fingers in the dike while the water is coming at us in mass waves so i have a lot of i just have a lot of um empathy because i understand the desire to reach for symbolic things because sometimes that feels like it's all you've got you know is there anything new about police violence, especially now that we're in this neoliberal age of militarized police? Is there anything new about the kinds of police violence? Can we at least say with certainty that the cops are not as bad as they were in the past? I don't think we can say that at all. And I think what we are seeing is a a kind of um, metastasization of policing beyond the police as an institution that that is actually what we're experiencing. So that if you understand the child welfare system as law enforcement, it's not social services, it's law enforcement, that's a form of policing. If you understand the massive, you know, people talk about militarization, but they talk almost non, non-existently, frankly, about surveillance and the mechanisms that the police use to surveil and the mechanisms then also that have spread to other institutions that they use to surveil people as well. I, um, uh, a friend of mine, Brendan McQuaid, has a book called Pacifying the Homeland. I think you all would be interested in that book and in that um, if he's not already been on your show. Um, and you know, he's talking about fusion centers and these fusion centers as this kind of mass policing surveillance apparatus that almost no one knows anything about, but yet has such an impact on our day-to-day -day lives. And um, in fact, I think just today they're having a some sort of a webinar based on a campaign they're launching in Maine to try to address the issue of fusion centers in Maine. I mean, you know, like, I just think there's so much unseen that people take for granted, but those unseen things are just going to give, and they, they just give more tools and more power to police us um, and to really ultimately do more harm. And I think we don't really pay that close attention. I think a lot of people wanna displace the police for policing 
And to me, that's, that's a fool's errand, you know, that's not gonna, that's not gonna get us where we need to go. Um, so yeah, so I think that um, the cops remain violent, they remain deadly, they've been killing a 1000 people um, a year for decades now. Um, you know, that number apparently goes down a little bit in places where protests actually happen against police and policing. So for the people who say protests do nothing, there's a piece that came out in Scientific America just last week that, you know, debunks that. Um, but I do think that, I do think that um, we have to be mindful of the way that policing has actually expanded. Um, Maya Shenoir and Vicky Law have a book called Police uh, by Another Name. Uh, is, is that what it's called? Something like that. Um, I have to remember exactly what it is, but Prison by Another Name, I think it's what it's called, um, that talks a lot about the, the kind of widening of surveillance and policing in very specific ways. Um, and if people are interested in more about this, I would suggest that they take a look at that book. Yeah, Brendan and Vicky and Maya have all been on our show, and people can find our interviews with Brendan McQuaid, Vicky Law, and Maya Shenwar at our website, thisishell.com. And I've got to look up this Scientific American article. I want to talk to that person now. Yeah. Uh, last June, we were speaking with a sociologist, uh, Sarah Beth Kaufman, who wrote a book called American Roulette, The Social Logic of Death Penalty Sentencing Trials. Sarah Beth argues that what underpins our entire justice system, our capital punishment, is a system that views vengeance as justice. What mm. is justice when it is not driven by a sense of, of vengeance for crimes committed? Mm. Mm, mm, mm. Can I just say, it feels really good to be vengeful, doesn't it? Yeah. Like, are we going to talk about that? That, that we're going to talk about the kind of liminal pleasure that we get out of vengeance. Because if we don't, then we're actually not getting at the core of why it's so, um, why, it, why it can be so satisfying and seductive. Um, because we need outlets. Like when people harm you grievously, it's just a human nature thing to want vengeance, I think. I think it's, I think the people who don't want vengeance are not the norm, right? Like those people we should probably study in some way to figure out like what was different about them and how they came upon their, their uh, construct that maybe they were vengeful at first and they came to a different end later. But like, I think the default is vengeance. And knowing that this is exactly why for me, it makes no sense whatsoever to create laws around individual cases that occur because I don't want my like deeply upset self to then be the response like that my personal harm that was grievous and horrific um, becomes the basis for policy for everybody. Like I, I actually don't want that. I want us to make distinctions as a society around that. And my individual desire for justice as vengeance shouldn't be the prevailing like societal imperative for coming up with a decision about what consequences look like for actions that are grievous. So I, I was thinking the other day um, about um, uh, someone who was really upset and said to me, um, you know, I'm not gonna be an abolitionist because I think that all the cops 
who kill people should end up like be you know under the jail like they they deserve to actually you know be prosecuted indicted and and for them to go to jail and they were very upset because they were like and you know and you abolitionists um you know saying no imprisonment um you know this doesn't make sense and also by the way uh you, you know as this person continues on um you know if we don't do this then we're not gonna we're gonna be able there's gonna be no accountability and it doesn't and we're not gonna be able and i and i was like wow i was like i hear this so deeply this person is so upset and and angry and like i really feel it and it's just clear that in locking up individual cops isn't going to end policing and the violence of policing right like it's just not going to do that so okay like you know could accountability in this case look like people getting fired having their guns taken away from them never being able to work in these areas again um losing their pensions like you know are there are there not a hundred other possibilities there are but i think what people want is like a proportionate right like for them it's like you took a life we take your life and i just don't i refuse to in you know, i don't want the state doing that in my name i just i refuse to to do that like i don't want that i don't believe in capital punishment i don't you know these are not things that i think um that i want the state to engage in in particular because the state doesn't actually um is so unequal in its application of the so-called law that it's always the marginalized and the marginalized and the marginalized who get hit with all of these things and they're the ones who suffer the most um while other people who have much more privilege just never see any sort of the same consequences and I don't think we're gonna shift that in that kind of way. So we need something else, something different. Yeah. You write that abolitionist politics and practice contend that disposing of people by locking them away in jails and prisons does nothing significant to prevent, reduce, or transform harm in the aggregate. It rarely, if ever, encourages people to take accountability for their actions. Instead, our adversarial court system discourages people from ever acknowledging, let alone taking responsibility for the harm they have caused. How does taking accountability reduce harm? How is being punished and serving time, even being marked as a felon for the rest of your life, despite doing your time, how is that not taking accountability for your crime? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, you know, punishment really, and I'm not the first to say this, you know, is incredibly passive. Uh, it's done to you. Um, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to change. You don't have to say you did the thing. You know, in fact, you're encouraged to lie that you didn't do the thing. Um, so it's not it's not real work, you know, on your part. It's 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 a it's an action taken against you, right? But you don't have to comply. You don't have to be involved. Accountability is hard because it involves an internal sense of right and wrong um that you have that you then have to decide to say i'm going to take accountability because i i realize and recognize that what i did was actually wrong and you know it's really hard to get there because we don't ever really want to admit that we're wrong but i find that you know with support from your community of folks whatever however that's defined um who might also be involved in telling you like you gotta 
stand up for this. You did do this. This is actually not okay. That accountability provides support for you to take accountability for the actions that you've caused. So a lot of times people will say to me, well, you know, people are evil. This isn't going to happen. What are you talking about? And my response to them is always this. I remember many years ago, people would always be mad at me when I would say like, you know, we should get rid of prisons, policing and surveillance. And then they would be like, what, you know, blah, blah. And it was always like that. It was always, it was never like just calm, right? It was always like people just immediately lashing out. And I would say, well, how, how many people or you, like, tell me how often you've called the cops? Like, how often have you called the cops? And usually the person would, and this is like without fail, the person would say never. Or the person would say, well, one time my bike got stolen. I went to the police, you know, to give a, a thing. And they were like, basically like, sorry, we can't help you, you know, like file, file a complaint, but not doing anything to get your bike back or, you know, any number of things. So the vast majority of people in this country, when they're harmed, don't actually call the cops. So say little of then going to court right, to be able to, quote, get justice, say little more that the court would actually take on the petition and move it forward, and then say almost nothing about the fact that then think about a trial or a plea bargain and then conviction. Like at every stage, it's less and less and less people. So we currently live in a society already where most people who harm other people don't take accountability at all. I'm just suggesting that we work towards changing our culture so that accountability becomes the norm. So that we have a culture where all of us are involved in the lives of, you know, people get mad at me sometimes because I facilitate community accountability processes for people who've caused harm. And they'll say like, you enabled a rapist, right? They'll get really mad because somebody raped somebody else. And, you know, there's no, the person who was harmed doesn't want to go through the the criminal punishment system because they understand what the criminal punishment system is or is not and they don't want to go through that and they don't want to engage it so you know I've, I've facilitated some processes around that and a couple have been public ones and um in one case this person went on to harm somebody else and people were really angry and upset about it even though like people who are locked up and go to jail and come back out may reoffend, and people just kind of are like oh okay cool that you know, that didn't work, keep it moving. That the people will be very upset and say like, well, that means enabling people. And I'm like, what is it, what are you talking about? Because we actually did a public accountability process. The person is known as having caused this harm to everybody. In, in one case, it's in the newspaper. Um, we've done more to name this harm to try to hold space for the person who was harmed in a way the system never does, to try to get the person who harmed people's community activated to help them take accountability for what's happened. We have done 25 times more than this current system does. And yet, and yet, this is seen as not sufficient, not, um, not um, hard enough on the person not punishment, not good enough, right? But that's not what, people aren't looking at the other side of it, which is the silences, the hiding, the lying that the current system enables, right? We're trying to do something different. And that means we're going to 
fail a lot. But guess what? The current system sucks. <laughs> and I just don't understand what people are arguing with us about. And by the way, we're working with the people who've already dropped out and decided they're not going to engage this system. So calm down. The system that everybody's so like worried about is the system we currently have, Chuck. It exists now, today. It's not something they have to imagine in the, like it exists now. Are people happy with what we've got? If they are, then cool, do your thing. But if you're not, what we're saying is join us in an attempt to create something different, to be different, to want different, you know? That's for you. Like you can choose to do that. If this is if the policing system that we have right now you think is working, then I'm not talking to you. Like, you know, you've got your own thing and you're doing your own thing and you think this system is correct and right. And I just know so many people who don't, who don't think the system is actually the right one to have, who feel completely like this can't keep on this way. So, so harmful. And you point out that the young people in your community who come into contact with the police can recite their names and badge numbers, as you were saying. Those are unforgettable uh, to them, the stuff of their nightmares. It's unclear to me how more conversations will change the dynamics of such oppression. But that's not the experience young people have everywhere. And where young people do not have that experience, many are in denial about what it is like for young people, especially of color, like your neighbors. So to what extent is it a lack of awareness of how policed lives are in places like your community, or are those in places far less policed than yours in active denialism about the police life and community like yours? Is is this driven by a lack of awareness or an abundance of denialism? Wow. (laughs) These questions. Is it maybe both? I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? I guess I'll talk to you. What's your sense? Uh, I think that you're right. I think it's both. And I think whenever I ask a question, is it one or the other? It's usually both. And it's a trick question. (laughs) So you shouldn't listen to it. Uh, Last month, we were speaking with reporters uh, Aline Brown and Akela Lacey, who co-wrote the Intercept article, State Legislatures Make Unprecedented Push on Anti-Protest Bills. Since the day of the Capitol insurrection, nearly a fifth of states moved bills that would crack down on protests in the wake of the events of January 6th. Should we further criminalize, politicize violence, especially considering the rise of fascism? Can we beat fascism by making it a crime? Oh, my gosh, no. Of course not. That is not going to happen. You know, I, I can we also just for a minute think about um, what happened on January 6th? I, oh. I cannot believe that the response that people are having to January 6th is that more laws and more incarceration is actually going to get to the root of this issue. Like I literally, when, when initially, when I saw those images of the cops, like letting folks in and all the lists of, you know, former military, former law enforcement, current law enforcement, who actually were part of the insurrection, I thought, well, for sure, folks are going to be like, um, this, like, maybe I need to rethink what I think about policing and the military and all of these things. But no, in fact, what we're seeing are the Democrats, in particular, calling for more money 
to the Capitol Police, which is already, I think, the most funded of all police systems in the US, to, for more funds to go to them. I And when I, when I saw things going south was when I saw people trying to pick out the individual cop, you know, uh, the individual black cop who led people away from the door. And I was like, oh, here we go. We're going to go to cop Ganda. And that's going to be the reason for why we have to actually give more funds to the police. And I could not believe you just yesterday hearing, I think it was Kevin McCarthy or somebody else saying, we do not need to be giving more money to the Capitol Police. And I thought to myself, oh my God, <laughs> like the world, it's now another <laughs> moment of... <laughs> Wait a minute. I mean, I think, uh, I, I, you know, and he's talking about making the capital a fortress. And I'm like, oh my goodness. You mean this guy who is a, himself a white supremacist fascist is the one making this case? Oh my God. And liberals are the ones running around saying more money to the, it's just, what are we doing? What is going on? Why is it that everything that we deal with in this culture is put more police on it? Why is that the initial, why, how is that possible? You see what's going on. You see your neighborhoods going where the libraries are being closed. The place where your kid could go for the time after school from three to six safely when you, because you can't get off work to pick them up and their school doesn't have after school programs anymore. That place is being defunded right now. And you are yelling about giving more billions of dollars to violence workers? Like, I just don't understand what people are thinking. And I really think to myself regularly, what does safety mean for these folks? Like, what does it mean to be safe? Doesn't it doesn't safety encompass having a place in your community that your kid could go and not be harassed and read some books and be taken care of until you are able to come and take care of them? Isn't that safety? Like. Yeah, I'm sorry. I just went off on that because I was just, I've just been following this in my, I just, I'm aghast. I'm just like, what, what is happening here? Why is this again, what we're going to do is give more money to this institution that is not going to be reformed people. I don't care what you're talking about. It is not. In the interim, can we do some harm reduction? Yes. But ultimately, this is what police is. And this is what policing does. And I don't understand people who refuse to see that regularly, even with all the evidence being provided to them over generations, you know? Yeah. And the other thing that they always do is they have a committee or a commission after this. And you mentioned yeah. how the Lexo oh. uh, committee undertook the first major investigation into police misconduct in New York City in 1894. The Wickersham Commission converted Kavin yes. uh, to study the criminal justice system and examine the problem of prohibition enforcement oh. in 1931. Kerner Commission back in 1967, following yes. all of the urban uprisings after 1991 and Rodney King. Again, more committees. We had the Obama administration's final report for the president's tax task force on 21st century policing, which resulted in more rules. You add the philosophy undergirding these reforms is that more rules will mean less violence, but police officers break rules all the time. What is it about policing that leads police to so often break the rules, whether that is a procedural restriction or acting in a, a criminal manner? What explains why seemingly police can't follow the rules? Because they have the right to that. 
because we give them the discretion to make law. Okay, that's why. And because the Supreme Court has stepped up overwhelmingly consistently to make it so that they can act with impunity. You know, and like, again, the law isn't going to save us here. And I just think that folks have got to get, get real. You know, folks have got to get real about this. And I, I just, you, we are not, I, I wrote in the Times piece that um, is in the book also now, just like look at what has happened over and over and over again. And every time there's a promise that it's going to get better and it doesn't get better. So I'm not the one who's unrealistic. The unrealistic people are the ones who consistently keep telling us that this stuff is supposed to actually make a difference when it doesn't, when it just doesn't. You know, and so, yeah, I don't, I think the realistic thing is, again, we have to abolish these systems. That's realistic. And we have to create something new. And that's the bottom line. You're not going to reform this. Miriam, I've got one last question for you. And as we do with all of our guests, and you may or may not remember, our final question is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience may hate your response. We've been speaking with organizer, educator, and curator Miriam Kaba, author of We Do This Till We Free Us, Abolitionist Organizing and Transforming Justice. She is the founder and director of Project NIA, which you can find out more about at Project and project-nia.org and find out more about Miriam at her own website, miriamkaba.com. That's K-A-B-A. So our question from hell for you is you write that there is not a single era in United States history in which the police were not a force of violence against black people. Policing in the South emerged from the slave patrols in the 1700s and 1800s that caught and returned runaway slaves in the North. The first municipal police department in the mid-1800s helped quash labor strikes and riots against the rich. Everywhere, police have suppressed marginalized populations to protect the status quo. Does the legacy of slavery continue and the effects of slavery persist in the lives of black people as long as the police exist? Will we ever have a true reckoning with slavery without abolishing police which were an invention of slavery? Well, you know, as I said um, in the thing you read, like the police in the United States, um, they've been invented multiple times across regions. Um, and Black people in the United States are consistently living in the afterlife of slavery. Doesn't mean that slavery, chattel slavery, um, of the periods uh, of the past are replicated exactly in our present? No, but we live in its afterlife. And the police exist not just to, um, you know, they can exist to control, to contain, and frankly, to eliminate certain populations. Um, and we know that. We know that throughout history and that that those functions haven't changed. And so I think, you know, I think we have to be clear on what the actual purpose and function of policing is in order for us to be able to understand what's currently happening, um, the current manifestations of it. So I would say we live in the afterlife of enslavement and slavery, chattel slavery as black people, but so do white people. And white people have an opportunity, I think, to do something different too. And I hope that folks will take that opportunity. Well, for those people who are not criminalized, who are not survivors of a criminalized life, how could abolitionism 
help out those who are not directly negatively impacted by police? Yeah, you can be you're I mean, being an abolitionist is not just being focused on the prison industrial complex, though that's important. My abolitionism is rooted in the prison industrial complex, the abolition of the prison industrial complex. I always think the people who are doing if you're working and doing work on getting a living wage, you're doing abolitionist organizing. If you're working on addressing the climate change issue, you're doing abolitionist organizing. If you're working to sustain and make public education stronger and better, you are doing abolitionist organizing, whether you know that or not, because what we believe as abolitionists, and this is something that Ruth Wilson Gilmore teaches us, that it's not just about changing one thing, it's about changing everything. And so everybody who's part of a social justice movement where we are trying to create a better world through our struggle is part of abolitionist organizing. So keep doing that work where you are and please pay attention to the fact that these systems that are death-making are actually harming you whether or not you experience it directly. They're harming your neighbors. They're making it much more difficult for resources that are needed for your fight to come to your fight Right? Like there are so many ways that these death-making institutions of policing, surveillance, and prisons are detracting from the struggle that you're engaged in rather than actually adding positively to the struggles you're engaged in. So that's what I would say to people. I would say they have an opportunity currently to be working in the ways that they should be working to actually make a difference um, in our world. So I welcome everybody to the, um, you know, to the abolitionist struggle. Miriam, I cannot thank you enough for being back on our show, and I'm going to be annoying you in the very near future to have you back on because I've really <laughs> enjoyed our conversation. I had a great time speaking with you back in 2017, so it's going to be less than four years, I promise, when we have you back on the show. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm, you know, I love the show, and I'm always happy to join you. So make the invitation. I'm happy to respond. All right. And uh, thank you again for the very kind words about my brother. They made me actually feel very good at the beginning of the show today. So thank you very much. Absolutely. Take good care. All right. Take care. Money is the root of all evil and capitalism is all about money. So you do the math. This is hell. This week's question from hell is what's the name of that top secret government weed strain? What's the name of that top secret government weed strain? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. All you have to do to see all of our merchandise is go to thisishell.com and click on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we're announcing this week's winner. Jess, do you have any answers to this week's question from hell for our, our listeners? Yes. Uh, Braden S. says CIA... <laughs> That's um, the name of the weed strain? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, Adam A. Um, Coinda Bro. Okay. Um, Sloan L. Project Green. Alan G. Extrajudicial Kush. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> um, Interagrotion and Extreme Green Dition. Warren L., uh, secret FBI surveillance van, 808. <laughs> There's been a Cintas van in front of my house now for like a week, and it hasn't moved. You know, the, the company that delivers like uh, clothes and stuff for uniforms for sure. businesses. And it's just been sitting there, and it's been driving me nuts. I'm like, 
I don't know. Cintas, yeah. I don't see you doing much business on my block. Yeah, you're not a hard person to find, probably. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> um, Ella W. Uh, Munawana. <laughs> okay. Um, what is the name of that top secret government weed strain? Um, Aaron D. Mars Explorer, Sour Maga, Hella Buster, Black Ops, or simply Space Force? Because the person that thought of that, uh, of creating that branch, had to be stoned. It had to be. <laughs> Space Force does sound like a great yeah, strain yeah. name. That's, <laughs> That's awesome. Um, Greg M. American Exceptionalist Sativa. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Um, Peter uh, Pete V. Uh, weed Strain Four Fifty Eight. <laughs> No. <laughs> Egon S. Operation Paper Cush. Um, Zach N. Can of Business Class. <laughs> uh, Joan C. It's just a conspiracy theory. All right. Benjamin C. Uh, Phlogistone. All right. <laughs> Mark A. J. Edgar Reefer. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah, that's good. <laughs> um, and uh, lastly, Bradley R. Corn Pop. Corn pop. Alex told me the other day that uh, he saw a weed strain named Son of Mujahideen. <laughs> Which sounds pretty intense. <laughs> we'll have more of your answers to this week's question mail on tomorrow's show. And again, we will be announcing the winner at the end of Thursday's show following Jeff Dorch in the Moment of Truth. It's time for a nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history on March 10th, 1948. 73 years ago tomorrow... Wednesday, the foreign minister of Czechoslovakia, Jan Masaryk, was found dead under mysterious circumstances, and that is not what you want to be found under. The son of Czechoslovakia's first president, Tomas Masaryk, who died in 1937, is commemorated in a giant statue at the University of Chicago campus. Jan Masaryk was a professional diplomat who had been appointed foreign minister of the Czechoslovak government in exile while his country was occupied by Nazi Germany during World War II. He remained in that post after the war and sought to preserve democracy in Czechoslovakia while remaining on good terms with the Stalinist government of the Soviet Union. But his advocacy of Czech participation in the Marshall Plan was shot down by the Soviets, and he soon found himself under increasing pressure on the only non-communist member of the post-war Czechoslovak government. His troubles ended the morning he was discovered outdoors, underneath his third-story bathroom window, dead, dressed in his pajamas. And what's with the Czechs and famous people being found dead outside of windows? Masaryk had earlier told people he was planning to go to London that day, and scratches and nail marks were found on his windowsill. But the Czechoslovak government reported his death as a suicide, and members of his family said in public that they believed the same. Western experts were skeptical, and various post-Cold War investigations turned up evidence suggesting murder. But to this day, the mystery of Masaryk's death has never been definitely solved. Or, I'm sorry, definitively solved. Yeah, unless Masaryk slipped, fell out the window caught himself, was trying to pull himself back into the room via the windowsill, I'm pretty sure another famous check was defenestrated. In Rotten History, March 13, 1697, 324 years ago this Saturday, a military force of some 250 Spanish soldiers succeeded in capturing the town of Nojpeten, capital of the Mayan government of Petenitsa, 
in what is now northern Guatemala. And if Spanish soldiers and Mayans are involved in rotten history, you know this will not end well. Located on an island in the middle of a lake, Nojpeten was home to some 2,000 Mayan people. The densely populated town reportedly boasted some 21 temples, comparable to what can be seen today at places like Palenque and Chichen Itza, and all of which were destroyed by the Spanish conquerors who also killed most of the town's inhabitants who failed to escape because nothing says God's work like destroying temples and committing genocide. The Spanish renamed the town first Remedios, as if genocide was the remedy for the Spanish soldiers' Mayan problem, and then Flores, which is the name by which the city is known today. Archaeologists report that the layout of the modern city still preserves much of the ancient Mayan street plan, Petén Itza was the last independent Mayan kingdom to yield to Spanish conquistadors, and its destruction brought a finish to the Spanish conquest of Guatemala. Again, not as much of a conquest as it was a straight-up genocide. That's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Just who is on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour show at 10 a.m. Chicago time right here at thisishell.com? Tomorrow on Wednesday, we have sociologist Ruth Milkman, on her book, Immigrant Labor and the New Precariat. And then what about Thursday's show? Thursday, um, we're talking with peace activist Kathy Kelly on her article, Remembering the First Gulf War for the Progressive. So Kathy's going to be on back on the show. I believe Kathy is the person who has appeared on This Is Hell more often than any other guest we have ever had on the show. It's got to be neck and neck with her and Black Agenda Report's Glenn Ford. So really looking forward to having Kathy Kelly back on the show. Thanks to everyone who showed your appreciation for This Is Hell by supporting us at thisishell.com and clicking on support. Thanks this week goes out to Charlie C. and George C. No word on if Charlie C. George C. are related. But thanks to both of you for your support. You can see all the ways you can support completely listener-supported This Is Hell, including subscribing to our Patreon podcast by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks for everything you do for This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Jess Slipka. Thanks to Jess for producing. Thanks to our guest, Miriam Kaba. Thanks to Alex Jerry for booking our guest. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>